Whose mark are you wearing? Let's pop the top on this. Cue the music. There's a war going down, put your shield and your armor on. There's a war going down, put your shield and your armor on. Pick up your sword, gather your strength from the only one. Pick up your sword, gather your What's up, guys and gals? I'm Carl. And I'm Chris. And you're listening to another episode of that Philly Faith podcast, where we talk the walk and walk it too. That's your cue, Chris. Right on. Well, I don't know. I just got a bunch of facts for you today, and I don't know real jokes. Oh, okay. That's fine. Well, you know. Mix it up a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's kind of disappointing, but... So, you know, the Earth is 70% water, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And it's uncarbonated? Yes. So... Technically, it's flat. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Boom. <Boom-sh. Yeah. laughs> In case I don't get it, because that was good. <laughs> no, you'll get it. All right. I was trying to, like, man, how am I going to play this off to where it's like, like, you get, like, I think it's funnier when you get, like, that dead cricket for a second, and you're like, oh. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I agree. So what's been going on with you? Not a whole lot. Um, I did want to mention, so at time of recording, it would have been the most recent episode that we have out. Early on in the episode, you mentioned a trend of Christians breaking fellowship with other Christians based on like one small disagreement mm-hmm. or argument. And it's and I do agree that it's something that needs to be addressed um, in the sense that it's not probably something we should be doing. Right. But I do, that gets me to thinking, I've thought a lot about this from, from recent events of when, when do we break fellowship with some, like at a certain point, your efforts are in vain. Right. What's the line? So yeah, do we, just keep pushing through or do we essentially conserve our energy and put it towards things that we have potential of changing, Mm -hmm. right? Like when do you stop beating a dead horse kind of? So that's kind of where, I mean, it's kind of a, there's, I don't think there's a really right answer. I think it's probably going to be situational. Mm -hmm. I agree. But that's what, that's what, it's been weighing a lot on my mind. Like, and it doesn't necessarily have to be from a spiritual standpoint. It can be, you know, from, you know, friendship wise or, you know, family wise. When do you just stop doing what you're doing for the sake of moving on to something that would benefit from your energy? Right. Right. Like if you're not seeing nothing come from the energy you're putting into something, is it worth keep going? Right. I think spiritually the answer is most emphatically yes. Yes, if we're viewing things through his lens. Right. Yeah. There's also wisdom in guarding your peace. Right. If they're hostile towards you, that's a little bit different. Because I think when we look spiritually, we see examples of Paul advocating for breaking fellowship. Right. You know what I mean? But it's a it's pretty extreme. I can't remember exactly where the reference is. I believe it's somewhere in Corinthians. Uh, forgive me for not having that like in my back pocket ready to go. But 
he was he 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 discussed pushing somebody out of the assembly, but that individual was guilty of some pretty severe sexual sins that mm-hmm. he was refusing to repent of. Right. And even in that case, Paul made it clear that his his goal for pushing them out was to, in his words, paraphrasing, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul might be saved on the day of salvation. The the objective behind it was to turn him turn him over to his own way in the hopes that he would be brought to repentance. Mm-hmm. So even then it wasn't it wasn't like a, you know, heck with you, we're done with you type of thing. It was right. a, this is the last resort. There's really nothing else we can do. We have to hand him over and hope that the spirit can find a way to reach them at the rock bottom moment to bring them back again. Right. So even then you see evidence that Paul's Paul's viewing through God's lens mm-hmm. of we need to, we need to leave no stone unturned in bringing this person back again. Right. As you know, they're a prodigal at mm-hmm. that point. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I think that's, that's an important point that, I mean, you never really ever, you're never really cut off from people, mm-hmm. right? There's always a way to get a hold of somebody no matter how emphatically they don't want you to get a hold of them. Right. Short of legal, you know, recourses. But, you know, I mean, it's at a certain point, do you just say, all right, I've, I've done everything that I can. I've given you all the tools. Now I just hope that God works. Right. And if you ever, if he ever does and you ever come around, I'm here. Mm -hmm. Like, I think at some point that's, I think we got to kind of be guard on, like you said, not to do it lightly. Like, oh, we have a disagreement about, you know, this one thing and I'm, I'm never going to church here ever again. Yeah. Versus, you know, years and years and years of, you know, trying somebody and then going, okay, well, obviously this isn't working. So I've done all I can do. I'm moving on. Yeah. I think, I think much too often we delude ourselves into believing that we're righteous. Right. Uh, But I think much too often we break fellowship for all the wrong reasons. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We can probably, we're very skilled at making ourselves right all the time. Right. But usually if we're being honest and identifying it, probably there was some selfishness involved. Mm -hmm. Typically, I think. Uh, Recently, and that, that episode you alluded to would have been, two weeks it would have been two episodes ago of feeding his will Mm -hmm. yep and i was supposed to record with broken record ministries podcast that week i believe it was that week but i had a sick kid so i didn't i stayed home and they were recording on uh running the race right from a biblical perspective what does it look like to run the race Mm -hmm. and it really you know I, i wanted to be there because that that topic had kind of been on me quite a bit but i think I think God wanted me to just intake that week, take mm-hmm. in a lesson right. as opposed to just talking. Sometimes, sometimes I like to talk and sometimes I think he just tells you to just shut up <laughs> and listen. <laughs> yeah. Now, now's the time yeah. for you to listen because there's something I'm trying to show you. Grace is in my oldest daughter. She's in track, right? Mm-hmm. She just started track this year. She did cross country last year. This is the first year she's ever done track and she's very, very, very self-critical. Everything she does is wrong. You know what I mean? Right. She is convinced that she's going to hold her team back, that she's going to be the reason they lose. She runs relay. She runs a four a four person relay. Right. She was stressed about even making making the relay squad, and she was stressed about her times causing them to lose a race. First track meet they did lose, right? And she was convinced it was all because of her. She's yeah. the reason. Just for some background, so she had another meet that night that they were recording on running the race, and 
she texted me. I wasn't able to go because I, I had to stay home with my littlest because, like I said, she was sick. Mm-hmm. And she texted me. She's like, Dad, Dad, we won. Super excited. We, 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 run our, we, we won the race. We got first place, right? right? That's great. It's awesome. Very cool. Happy for you. Mm-hmm. I'm not proud because you won. I'm proud because you did your best. But I'm glad that you won, right? right? Wasn't like an hour or two later, she texted back again, disappointed, totally defeated because the individual times came out. And even though they won the race, her individual time, she was only 11th. So she viewed that as a failure. Right. That she didn't do good enough because she didn't individually do better. Right. Right. And I'm kind of talking her through this as best I can through text messaging. And then she comes back and she's like, I know, I think I know what happened. Because when, by the time I got to my leg, she said, I think she runs like third. Mm-hmm. She was like, by the time I got to my leg, we were so far ahead there was, n- there was no other competitors around. And she's like, I feel like I didn't push myself as hard as I would have if there had been somebody closer that I was, that I was racing against to beat. Mm-hmm. And the spirit hit me. That's how we tend to run our spiritual race. We view it like a competition, like we have to beat the other guy. Right. Right. We view everything as a competition when I think the spiritual race is supposed to be run cooperatively. It's supposed to be a cooperative, a cooperative race. That doesn't mean we always agree or that I'm going to, and we'll get to that later in this episode, or that I'm going to agree with bad doctrine. What it does mean is that I'm not going to look over at your ministry and see you more air quotes successful and try to trip you and make mm-hmm. you fall because I want to win. Right. Because I'm racing to win and I need to compete against you. We need to be running cooperatively, doing our best because it's the right thing to do for our team, which is God's team. Right. And I think very often we end up breaking fellowship out of a competitive spirit. Whereas if we understood the the cooperative nature of his spirit, we wouldn't be doing that to each other, I don't think. Right. Does that kind of make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that kind of leads me to to another point that I was going to make that I think you can almost stray into a into a sense of. um, Yeah. I had the word before I came here, but now I lost it <laughs> uh, into, into a sense of arrogance mm-hmm. that like, if I just, if I do this just right, I'm going to be the one that makes this change in this person's life. Or yeah. I'm going to be, I'm just not, I'm, I, I'm not doing this. I'm, I'm, I, 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 yes. you get into that mentality. I think you get into that mentality. I think you're going to drive your, both the person you're trying to reach and yourself to a point they're just not going to stop listening. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause they're hearing me, me, I, 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 and, and like, and, and, and this, it's funny that you bring up the sense of a, of a relay because your, your leg of that, of that person, that person's race might be over and it's time for you to hand that baton to somebody else. That's a great point. Like it's, it's not always going to be you because it's him. Mm-hmm. Right. And even we should it, be it, at a place it, where we can cheer them even if they ran a little faster on their leg. Right. 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 Are they are they achieved achieved, you know, salvation with somebody else? Mm-hmm. Or some you know, you planted the seed, somebody else harvested the fruit. Like that's the the point is that person saved. Yes. And that's what you should be rejoicing. And we need to not need, who did it. Yes. And we need to recognize too that he rewards us based upon the skill and the ability he gives us. So we need to stop looking at the skill and the abilities of those around us 
and see them as better. Well, I've got to beat that person. I've got to do better. They're more successful than me. I kind of think of the the parable of the talents. He gives mm-hmm. he gives talents to different individuals. And like, for example, he gives two talents to one individual and then five talents to another. They both doubled it, right? right. They both doubled their talents. The one with two doubling only brings in two more talents. So the one with five brought in more talents. By a worldly metric, the one with five talents doubling their talents is more successful. But Yeshua, Jesus, he rewards them equally because they worked equally hard with what they had been given. Right. So the reward was the same. We need to remember that. He doesn't view success the way we do. Right. And that's the enemy. The enemy wants us to be at each other's throats competing with one another because it's going to, it's going to stifle what the spirit wants to accomplish through us mm-hmm. instead of working together to reach as many people as possible. We're, we're shipwrecking each other so that, yep. so that we can say my, my ministry was more successful than theirs, but it ain't about you. And if it's, if it's got to a point where it's about you, then you need to take a step back, be silent for a little bit and listen, because he probably has something to tell you. You know what I mean? Right. It's tough. I'm not saying it's easy. I think we're all guilty of it at times. I'm convinced mm-hmm. pride is the root of every single sin. I don't think there's a single sin you can point out that it, at some point you scratch deep enough, you're going to find pride. Mm-hmm. I'd agree. Never thought of it like that, but I'd agree. What else you got? That's it, man. That's it? That's it. Well, I had so much this week. I was going to say, you had a lot. I don't know how much I'm ready to talk about. Or how much of it I should ever publicly talk about. Had a very interesting encounter with the Spirit this weekend. We'll just put it that way. Right on. But I think I'm going to leave it at that. All right. <laughs> it's, it's much of a of a of a anticlimactic end. Uh, that little segue is. All right. I don't know if I should share that yet. I'm still processing it. Right on. I will say this: when Scripture talks about the power of the Spirit. It ain't playing. <laughs> That's not just a word. It's not just a word. We've got to start believing. Right. We've got to stop this attitude that that I think even if even if we don't outright state it like some churches would, I think in our heart we've 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 adopted this attitude that God doesn't move like he used to. God doesn't do the miraculous things like he used to. God doesn't do signs and wonders like he used to. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Right. He absolutely does. He just wants us at a place where we're willing to even recognize it if he does it. I think, I think it's, we've mentioned it before and so is broken records that we're, you know, we're, I think we're numb to it. Mm -hmm. We're expecting like a parting of a sea before we go, okay, maybe there's some legit to this. Yeah. That we, you know, that we miss the small miracles they're happening all the time. We brush those aside as uh, that person is crazy. It doesn't work like that. And I'm like, he's capable of those big things, but until we recognize the small things, like you're going to, it's like you're missing, you're missing the trees for the forest. Yeah. Right. You're missing all, you're missing the everyday miracles in your life because you're trying to look for that big one. Mm-hmm. Right. He's all around us. He shows himself to us all the time. But if you dismiss people that say, hey, I have this experience, and you dismiss them, then I, f- I feel like you're you're not only numbing yourself, but you're numbing the world. Yes. Because that person's going to go, okay, well, maybe I really didn't feel that, you know? So. 
he wants to move. <clears throat> he wants to move in your life in a very powerful way and more than just a little bit of a demeanor change. There's more mm-hmm. to it. There's more to it. You can't read the book of Acts and think that that the power of the Spirit has gone away since Jesus died and ascended. Right. You know what I mean? We see we see healings happening happening in the book of Acts. You know what I mean? Right. We we, we see speaking in tongues. We see we see, we see a lot of unexplainable things occurring in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. A lot of unexplainable things, unexplainable naturally. That the, the only explanation is but God. That couldn't have happened, but God, you know what I mean? Right. We have to be open to it, though. We've got to be open to it. I just don't know what I'm supposed to share on it. I don't know. Maybe we'll share more next week. Okay. Well, I asked you a question before, before we recorded. Mm-hmm. And we'll just, we'll just segue straight into that. Okay. What is the difference between being called and being chosen? This one is pretty challenging. It's a tough one, isn't it? It, and my gut knee jerk reaction was, well, kind of one and the same. But then I start looking at you know definitions and differences between people saying you know God chose me for this, or you know I was called to do this. This is this is kind of what I landed on, and it's not rock solid. But but here it goes. So I think you find what you were chosen for by following a calling. So basically you're a, a calling begot begets begots a finding out what you're chosen for. I think and I think that kind of ties in to our free will a little bit. I think you know, God chooses you for many different things. But based upon the decision, decisions that you make, what you're chosen for at that particular time might change. Yes. So, and so, and I'm going to give you this, and this, uh, and for some reason, I went back to our discussion about Goliath. Okay. And how we were trying to decide did did God like basically did God create Goliath's life with the intent that David would end it, or did God choose Goliath in that moment for David's purpose? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer to that is yes. So Goliath's calling in life was to be a soldier. He was physically attributed for it as 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 described and so his calling was to be a soldier he was in the army okay but in that situation he was chosen by god to serve as david's example right right so did did god specifically make him for that purpose no, but I think he chose him through his calling. If Goliath had been a baker, would he have been on the battlefield that day? And God maybe would have chosen somebody else for the same exact purpose at that time. So I think if we, you know, if you follow a calling, you'll find out what you've been chosen for. Right. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. 
And so that, and I think that's the difference between, you know, we're all called to be, you know, well, I mean, let's, let's take preachers, for example, my preachers feel called to be a preacher. But in that sense, each one finds out what they're chosen for. This one might have been chosen to lead this church. This one was chosen to write this book. This preacher was chosen to go on this mission trip. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I think you find your, I don't want to say find your choosing because you're not choosing it, but you find what you were chosen for. Right. And I'm repeating myself over and over again, but I'm just trying to make what's in my head make sense on paper. Yeah. You've said the word follow a lot. So would you agree that to be chosen requires something from you? Yeah. Let me read something and then we'll we'll revisit okay. that question. Right okay. On. So I'm gonna read it's it's from Matthew chapter twenty two and it's the parable of the marriage feast. Okay. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dive into the weeds on the prophetic implications. I believe there are multiple harvests at the end of in, at the end of time or at the end of days. I believe this is the first one. Mm-hmm. Okay. I believe there's another harvest after again, we're not gonna dive into that, but this is the wedding supper. Or at least one at least if there are two wedding suppers. This is at least the first one. Right. Don't stone me for saying that. I have a reason for why I said that, but this is, everyone can agree this is the wedding supper of the Lamb. Okay. That's what we call in prophecy. But that's really not relevant. I want I to dig into the, to the imagery here that he presents us in this parable. And again, it's, it's Matthew chapter 22, and it says this, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Who's the king here, by the way? Uh, in the in the wedding feast. In, in this wedding in this feast? analogy, who would the king be? Oh, God, God, yeah, yeah. the father, right? Right, yeah, father, father's the king, father. the son's Jesus. Okay, sorry, I, I was like. That seems like the easy answer, and I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> I just wanted to give you a chance to, to raise your voice a little bit. Just, like. <laughs> just establishing context. Then he said to his slaves, verse 8, Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Why were they not worthy? He invited them. What, what made them unworthy, would you say, based upon what we've read so far? Because they chose not to come. Because they chose not to come. Verse 9, Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. So in the context there, he's inviting evil people in even. Okay? And a lot of them, it seems like. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, 
How did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So, what's the difference here based upon this parable between being called and being chosen? I mean, I feel like... Remember, remember that when he gives his second invitation out, he brings in both evil and good. Right. So it wasn't about their sinlessness. Right. Or their perfection. It was, so at that point, they chose to come, but it was the ones who came prepared versus the one that was not prepared and went in clothes that got thrown out. I think I would disagree just a little bit. I don't, I don't disagree with the, the premise of what you're saying. If they're evil... They don't have no nobody who was invited, evil or good, had wedding clothes on when they were invited. In the context of this, they're in the field. Right, that's what I'm saying. Clothes. That's what I'm saying. Like they, like all the people that were that that were invited the second time came, but on their way, like they might have stopped at home. Or they were like, "Hey, I'm going to a wedding. I can't go. I can't go as I am now. Right. I need to prepare myself." So I feel like in that sense. If, if, if we're out, if we're out in the field and God calls to us and we go, but we do nothing to prepare ourselves, we're going to get to the end and find out, yeah, I was called, but I, I didn't prepare at all. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Almost like, almost like, you know, like I, I don't, I didn't put oil in my lamp. Yeah. Yeah. So. And we'll actually, we'll actually read that, that parable in a future episode coming up soon that you're referencing there. I agree with you, but let me add a new element here. So we've, we've read on the podcast recently, Zechariah chapter three, mm-hmm. about the Joshua, the priest, he's being accused by Satan and he's wearing filthy garments. Do you remember what the filthy garments represented? His sin. His sin. Yeah. Right. So he's inviting evil and good here and they're wearing filthy clothes. And if, 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 if we're allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, Zechariah 3 tells us that the filthy clothes represent their sins. What made Joshua the priest in Zechariah chapter 3 clean? Mm. So I, I feel like, like, is it the, the difference between giving up your sin and not giving up your sin? Still coming, is that... Is that is that is that what I'm putting together here? Like they came, the ones that came to the wedding in clean clothes were the ones that gave up their sins. Where the one that the one that was thrown out didn't give up his sins. Yeah, I I think so. I think there's an element of that because we see that there's a, there's an element of willingness that's required here. Because mm-hmm. remember, the first group that was invited, the reason they didn't come, it says in the text that they were unwilling. Right uses that word, says they were unwilling to come, so they went their own way. Hearkening back to Zechariah chapter 3, does, does Joshua the priest put on the clean clothes himself, or does the father put the clean clothes on him? Oh, the father puts the clean clothes on him. He does the work, right? So the, the, the clean clothes, is it Joshua's righteousness, or is it the father's righteousness being put on Joshua? The father's righteousness. The father's, yeah. I think it's the same here. 
I think it's a willingness to accept the Father clothing you with his righteousness to cover up the stain of your sins. And what's interesting here, in the context, it seems like many evil and good people were invited. But he says he found one person, one person that didn't have clean clothes on, which means there were evil people, by his definition, evil people sitting at the wedding feast who did have clean clothes on. But it couldn't have been because they were so good, because it says they weren't. Right. It says they were evil. So what's the difference? I think the difference is when they come to the wedding feast in, in parable language, they're having clean clothes offered to them. And the difference is their willingness to accept it or to push your hand out and push the clean clothes away and say, no, that ain't for me. And I think that's what this man who still had filthy garments on did. I want to be here. I want all the rewards. I want all the blessings, but I ain't wearing that. Yeah, I just came for the party. I just came for the party. Yeah. I ain't wearing that. I don't want anything to do with your ways. I don't like the style. I'm going to wear my own clothes. And he gets bound up and kicked out for it. I don't think the difference is how adequately they repented. Repentance is required, don't mistake me. Right. But I don't think that's the difference. I think the difference is bound up in that word. Willingness or unwillingness. Which are you. You see what I'm saying? Right. I want to read something from Jeremiah real quick. Before I give my response to the question. It'll take me a second to find it. I didn't, I didn't bookmark anything this week. I've been very irresponsible. Right. I apologize. I've had a lot going on. It's not an excuse, I know. But it's all I got. It's an excuse I'm using. I'm just going to leave all this page flipping in so you can hear it. Okay, it's, it's you can blame Chris because he, he didn't want me using my tablet. I never said, I don't want you. I'm, hey, now, come on. That's unfair. I never said not to use it. Probably mess with Chris. <laughs> I'm sick of listening to all this page flipping. I'm just saying you wouldn't have you wouldn't have connectivity issues with the Bible. Okay, it's Jeremiah chapter 35, verse 17. And just in the context, this is a rebuke of Judah, but this is this is applicable to the question we're asking. But it's a rebuke of Judah for not only their sin, but their unwillingness to heed his call to repent from it. He's telling them what they're doing wrong and that he wants them to return and they're saying no, right? Right. But verse 17 says this, Therefore thus says Yahweh, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, because I spoke to them, but they did not listen, and I have called them, but they did not answer. Called them, but they did not answer. I think that's the answer to the question. The difference between being called and being chosen is how we respond to it. That's why I highlighted when you, when you repeatedly said follow. So I think that's important because I think that's essentially the answer to the question. Mm -hmm. I think he calls a lot of people. I think the difference between those he chooses and those he doesn't choose are the ones that actually respond to the call and follow after him. That's a verb that requires something from us. His burden is light. It's easy, right? Well, yeah. simple. It's not always easy. Simple mm -hmm. and easy aren't always the same thing. It's a very simple thing to follow after him, but it does require a response from us. Mm -hmm. Judah here wasn't responding. The, the one in the filthy garments and the wedding feast wasn't responding. They responded in the sense that they showed up to the party. 
they didn't respond in the sense that they were willing to do things his way once they got there. To harken back to our Nets of Deception episode, they showed up covered in pig poop, refused to get cleaned off, refused to put the clean clothes on. He doesn't accept that. Right. Right. That to me would be my simple answer is they respond. I think the important thing to highlight too is what that response should look like. Right. Mm -hmm. I think very often, I think it's taught that, that responding to his call is just head knowledge. It's just belief. That's it. You just have to believe. Right. Right. I don't think that's true. I think it requires a little bit more than that. You know, this episode mm-hmm. is a continuation from last week's episode, the, the Who's Mark. Are we responding? When he tells us what pleases him and what doesn't please him, what's our response? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Are we acting upon what he says? Right. Or are we doing what feels good? I hadn't planned on it, but I'm going to read something from Hosea. Actually, because okay. I think it I think it highlights pretty well what I'm talking about here. <laughs> what is it? Hosea what? Hosea. Hosea. What? Hosea what? Oh, I didn't hear that part. Oh. I'm gonna start in chapter six, but then we're gonna go to chapter eight to create oh, okay. a connection. So and this is a a severe hosea the entire book just to give some background hosea's as a prophecy is a severe rebuke of the nation state of israel the the northern kingdom the 10 tribes that were divided away from judah um, ahab's kingdom mm-hmm. right severe rebuke and hosea was i apologize listeners there's background static noises i can hear it while i'm recording i don't know how to how to get that out i apologize you're just gonna have to deal with it <laughs> I've, I've tried everything but anyway, Hosea, he was, he was commanded to take a prostitute as a wife as a metaphor for how Israel has treated him as their God, right? They want, to, they want all the benefits of being his bride in the wedding feast. They don't want any of the responsibilities. Right. They want to do things their way. They want to leave the filthy garments on. So in chapter 6 of Hosea, verse 6, he says, the father says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. Stop there. What do you think he means by knowledge of God? If I was just going to read that without any context, how would you answer that? Well, and just being honest, it, right. it doesn't matter if it's a I'm long gonna, answer, but taken out of context, what would you say? I'm going to, taken out of context, you're, I think you would, the the knowledge in the sense of you, you, you know, all God's laws, you know, them, you can recite them head knowledge, but, right? Head knowledge. But here, this is funny. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to blow up what you're trying to get at. Cause in the same verse in my translation, what is your translation, by the way? That's uh, the NIV. Okay, mine's the, NASB, just so everybody right. knows. So mine says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Ooh. So I think in this now, in that sense, he wants to be recognized as God. Make your burnt offerings, 
that's not going to do anything. You can make burnt offerings all day long, but until your heart acknowledges God, that's what he's after. I love it. Before I give a little addendum to that, I want to read the next verse because I think this verse is taken out of context often for six here to say, see, he doesn't care about sacrifice, so he doesn't care about his law. And it's not quite what he's saying. He's saying there's, there's, a, there's a weightier matter here. When you add verse 7, it kind of blows up that attitude because it says, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously with me. Okay, so it's clearly saying that the covenant matters. Covenant expectations matter. Mm-hmm. But what verse 6 is telling us is the heart matters more. And I love that you read your translation of that. I should have looked up the Hebrew in this because I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm honestly not sure what the Hebrew one knowledge or acknowledgement there is. This isn't head knowledge. It's the point I'm trying to make. It's relationship knowledge. There's a difference. It's relationship knowledge. It's, it's being in step and in a relationship with him, not just knowing about him. Knowing right. about him is not enough. Right. I mean, there's people in the world that, well, the Bible front to back, but mm-hmm. only because they've they've read it yeah it doesn't mean that that they even acknowledge that god exists some yeah. people can tell you everything in the bible but then they'll turn around and say but it's all just one big story god's mm-hmm. not real yep you can know it not that not that you can you can't know everything about god but even if you could you could know everything about god and not be in a relationship with him it wouldn't be good enough right. and i think in the context that individual that's thrown out of the wedding feast he's there He's there in the wedding feast, seeing God in the presence of God. He knows more about God in that context than anyone listening to this does. And yet, despite all that knowledge, he refuses to walk with him. Refuses to have enough of a relationship to say, yeah, I'll do things your way. My way is not good. The things I've been doing aren't great. I need to fix it. Right? I need to let you fix it for me. No. He pushes his hand out, pushes the robes away, and says, no, I don't want anything to do with that. Do you see what I'm saying? Yep. So I'm going to move over to Hosea 8. This would be a pretty good segue into our, our main topic this week, really. I'm just going to read the first few verses of it in direct connection to what we just read. Okay. Put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of Yahweh because... They have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. So much for verse 6, chapter 6, telling us his law doesn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. Verse 2, this is where I want to really highlight this. They cry out to me, my God, we of Israel know you. We know you, God. We have a relationship with you. We know you. But then verse 3 says, but Israel has rejected the good, so the enemy will pursue him. I'm going to stop there. Do you see the dichotomy he sets up? They're acknowledging him. They are acknowledging him. Israel's acknowledging Yahweh as God and saying, we know you. We worship you. We acknowledge your name. We do all these things that we do. We, we, we sacrifice at our, at our false temple in your name. It's okay. We know you, God. And he's saying, no, you've transgressed my covenant. You've rebelled against my law. You don't know me. You just know my name. Right. You know about me. You know about the promises. You know about the benefits of serving me, but you don't know me. None of the responsibilities have you accepted. That's what he's telling Israel here. And I can't help but see the parallel between this and what's happened with the modern church. 
We give him lots of lip service. We know you. We know you, Jesus. We've got a relationship with you. You don't care if we Christianize some pagan practices, do you? Doesn't matter to you anymore, does it? We really like that stuff. We know you. It's okay. We can do whatever because we know you. Doesn't seem like he was too happy with that practice and that attitude then. And he's an unchanging God. I don't think he's probably too happy with it now. We have to get a lot more serious about doing things his way, following him, and getting real about what it really means to know him. Because your head knowledge is not going to save you any more than the head knowledge of the man in the wedding feast saved him. Right? We have to accept his clean robes, his wedding garments, which is a representation of his ways, his commandments, his marriage covenant. And it's interesting, we've talked a lot about the marriage covenant, Sinai being a marriage covenant. And what do we see Yeshua doing there? Directly linking the wedding feast and the commandments and the clean robes into the context of a marriage covenant. Everything is built around this concept of a marriage covenant, which is why I find it so interesting that you've been kind of obsessed with the roles recently and very focused on the, the, the marriage role. The, mm-hmm. the husband-wife role. We're going to do an episode on that soon because I have some things I want to share about the traditional Galilean wedding and, and the time of, of Jesus on earth mm-hmm. that gives us so much clarity on what God's intent for us really is and really some clarity on some prophetic issues too. And that'll mm-hmm. be a fun topic. That's good. Because uh, I I think the the term marriage has been severely misused and diluted since its inception as a concept Versus today's world. So last week, we started our discussion called Who's Mark? Right? Mm-hmm. And we were very focused on Yahweh's Mark last week. Do you remember what the three marks were? The three occasions where he uses that term Mark? Mm-hmm. It was the Sabbath, the Passover, and his law. It's generalized as his law. Right. And in each case, it used that same Hebrew term oath, which literally means like it's, 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 Mark is a good translation of it or a sign, but it, it can it can be a literal or figurative branding upon you. Mm-hmm. And I believe it's with uh, the Passover and with the law, he, he says it's like a brand upon your right hand and upon your forehead, but with Sabbath, it was just a generalized mark. Mm-hmm. But use that same word. That's really what we focused on. Uh, and we'll get into how we're going to continue that discussion on answering that question, whose mark are you wearing in the bottom half of the episode? But I want to share a little something. Do you know what a witness mark is? Have you ever heard of witness marks in relation to, I'm being too vague, in relation to clocks? Witness mark? No, I haven't. Really cool. Go I pro- ahead. I probably have, but but I'm, I'm like, maybe not, that was the term for them. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, I don't know the term, but I know what they are, but proceed, sorry. No, don't be. It's it's really cool. I read this recently, and it was a, it was a story that somebody shared. They have this whole... It's, a, it's an antique grandfather clock is what they had, right? Mm-hmm. And they're kind of hard to, to get somebody to work on them anymore because, you know, they're not real common, right. right? But I guess it had broken down and they had somebody in it, a repair technician working on the clock and they're working on the gears, right? The, intri- the intricate gears on the inside. And at some point they noticed a, uh, or I guess the repair person showed it to them. There was like a, a little mark scratched into the gear, the timing gear, Right. right? And he showed it to him. He said, you know what that is? And the owner's like, no, I have no idea. And he's like, that's a witness mark. He's like, that kid, that witness mark could be a century old. 
that could have been the last repairman that worked on this on this this grandfather clock and who knows how old it is he's like it's a really cool story what they would do as a consideration for the next person to work on the clock when they got everything timed correctly and the clock so it was telling the correct time they would put a witness mark they would scratch a witness mark on where the alignment should be so that the next person working on it it, it would make their job easier they'd line up the witness mark and when you lined up the witness mark correctly if it was a correct witness mark it would tell the correct time but the witness mark was off. What happens? The whole clock's off. Whole clock's off. Timing's off. I believe that's what these marks of God are. I don't think it's accidental that he uses the term mark. I think it's like a, I think, I think his ways, and you see this very, very, with Sabbath going all the way back to before the fall. That's like, that's like an acknowledgement that he's the creator. Because Sabbath is very tied to creation week, right? It's like an acknowledgement that he's our creator. When you look at Passover, it's like an acknowledgement that he's the one that stands up to protect us. He's the one that's jealous for us. He's the one that rescues us. And Passover points directly to Jesus, directly to Yeshua, directly to his salvational work and beyond, right? Mm-hmm. It's a witness mark. So you have a witness mark for his creation of us, acknowledging that he's he's our maker. You have a witness mark in, in relation to his redemption of us from our fall, and then a witness mark in relation to his law, his standard, pointing to his ways. That I've acknowledged you as creator, God. I've acknowledged you as my redeemer, God. Now I'm going to acknowledge that my steps will be in line with yours, with the law. They're witness marks. Witness marks making sure that our spiritual clock is in time. Right. I think it's like it's like a mark upon those who respond to the call. Right? It requires response. Mm-hmm. You have to follow through on it. You can't just intellectually acknowledge that he uses these things to keep us in line or keep us aligned to him, I should say. We have to respond to it also. But what happens if we follow a witness mark that's ever so slightly off? then you are forever so slightly off. Your spiritual time's never going to be right, is it? Mm-hmm. Your spiritual clock will be forever misaligned. It may look right on the outside, as it's still going to look like a clock, but the time's going to be wrong. If we align our mark to something other than his. I think that's what the enemy's mark is. I do. I think last week we started off by referencing the famous passage in Revelation chapter 13 of the Mark of the Beast, right? Mm-hmm. Just as a, as, a, as, a, as a heads up to anybody, I'm not going to dive deep into the weeds on what the Mark of the Beast is. We're not going to dive too much into prophecy or anything like that. I am going to reference that chapter of Revelation because it's important, right? But this isn't going to be a Mark of the Beast discussion per se. More of a, of a more broad discussion on what the enemy's Mark looks like. Because if we, if we need to know what the Father's mark looks like, we also need to recognize what the enemy's agenda is in misaligning our clock. Right. What would be more effective to misalign our clock? Something that's completely so far off base that anybody would see through it immediately? Or something that's very subtle? Really close. It's really close to the correct witness mark where it should be. It's only off by a couple degrees. It's a big deal. Still the wrong time. Right. right? 
still the wrong time. And if you keep putting additional witness marks that are just a couple degrees off, eventually you're way off. If you keep changing the witness mark, more and more off base. And I think that's what's happened in the church. I think the witness mark has been set off by a couple degrees. And over centuries, the next repairman keep moving it a little bit more. Yeah, the next person to open up that clock and really dig into it didn't have a good starting off point. Do you have anything else you want to talk about this top half? I'm um, good. Feels like a hard break, I know, but I think I think that's a good segue into the bottom half of the episode because that's what we're going to be talking about in the bottom half. We've we've talked about what the father's mark is. Now we have to talk about what the counterfeit is, the misalignment mark. Yeah, right. Right on. So that's what we're gonna do. So you made it softer. <laughs> I did all right. <laughs> So we're going to go ahead and take our break. So that'll, that'll end us on this top half of the episode. And uh, we'll continue this discussion on the other side of the break. But as usual, we're going to play a song for you. And this week, it's going to be Feeding on Fables by Mountains Into the Sea. Catch you on the other side. Enjoy.
and we are back. So again, this bottom half we're going to talk about the counterfeit witness mark, essentially. If we're going to ask whose mark are we wearing, we have to know what what both options are, right? right? And I think I shared with you, Chris, I agonized over this topic a little bit. Mm -hmm. And my struggle wasn't based upon, you know, the premise that I didn't know if the Spirit was leading me on it. I know he is. But I also know how difficult the topic is. And it requires a diplomatic approach. Right. And even when you are diplomatic, there's probably going to be some that listen and just throw accusations at you and cast you aside anyway. But I think it's important. There's a there's a statute in the Sinai Marriage Covenant. I forget the the verse. I believe it's in chapter 22. But it's the statute about uh, pulling an ox out of the mud. Right? Mm-hmm. And essentially what the command says is, even if it's your enemy who's struggling with his ox in the mud, in, in the mud, stuck in the mud, you have an obligation to put your hostility toward your enemy aside and help him. Right. You need to help him pull the ox out. I think sometimes that ox can be us. I don't think it's always an animal. Right? Mm-hmm. And if you see an ox in the mud, you have an obligation to help pull him out. That's my heart in this, right? I wanted to share that because that's my heart in this. It's not to point the finger at you and say you're doing things wrong. So am I. I guarantee it. You know, right? I, you know, if I'm being honest, I'd, I'm not sure that any of us have the right witness mark. We can do our best based upon what the word says, but I think we're all probably missing the mark a little bit in our own in our own way, and Father, forgive us for our ignorance. <laughs> Father right. God, don't damn us for our ignorance, because I think we're all missing the mark. But we can at least try, right? Mm-hmm. And if you see somebody else that's way off base, provably off base, you need to approach it. You need to approach it. Approach it, period. Mm-hmm. It needs to be approached. However, it needs to be approached in love and in humility and without arrogance. That's my heart in this. I just want to pour that out. There's no hostility here. But I have to share it. Right? Right. Let me get a drink of water because I feel like a tough pill's coming. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so again, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna repeat my my methodology. Is this is the unifying theory of two plus two? I always go back to it. Mm-hmm. And I don't always succeed in applying it. I know that. I'm passionate to a fault. Spirit has to rein me in a lot. Right? Mm-hmm. Or I don't get reined in and he has to chastise me later. And it's very painful. I don't want to do that again. So <laughs> I'm gonna do my best to follow it this time and just give you the information that you need. Now, when it comes to this topic on the counterfeit mark, there's a lot of information I could share. I could go on for probably two or three hours in this podcast sharing quotes, you know what I mean? Horrible quotes from some of the church fathers, church, you know, you know, quotes from, from council decisions, church history that's not good. I could go on and on and on and on. There's a lot I could share. Very little I probably should share or that would be productive. I think you get to a point with information where there's so much information that it becomes overwhelming and counterproductive. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And then it, it very easily turns into a, a lecture session on, look at all the things they're doing wrong. 
And I don't want it to turn into that. I'm going to share just as, as just enough information to give you a picture of the, of the course that was taken. Okay. Okay. But I want to link the vast majority of what we do and on this topic with scripture, because at the end of the day, what matters more, what the father says or what some men say about the father? That's a loaded question. It's a loaded question. That's yeah, yeah. what the father says. Clearly. We need to we need to identify what he says, how he says to approach him, how he says to follow him, and make sure that we're as best aligned to that as we can be. And it really doesn't matter what anybody else says. Again, I'm gonna I'm gonna show some gonna share a couple things to show what happened with the direction the church took. But again, at the end of the day, if your doctrine can't be fully aligned with the Word of God, or if you come to places where you have to ignore things the Father said to justify your doctrine, maybe you need to do some reflection on it. What I had to do, it's not like I was raised in this. I've talked about it before. You know, I was raised non-denominational Christian. There's a lot of things I'm going to talk about that, you know, that church still does. Not condemning them. But at some point, you have to act upon what the Father's showing you and telling right. you. You have to respond positively to the call. Right? You have to be willing. Mm-hmm. Talking back to what we talked about at the top half. So I guess we'll just dive in. Do you know what syncretism is? Syncretism? Syncretism. Have you ever heard that word before? No, but I mean, from context, I mean, I'm going to, like, guess the act of getting everything in sync or everything yeah. in line. Mm-hmm. It is, it's a religious term, or it's used religiously. It's the practice of taking, or it's like, it's, it's the theology or, or ideology of taking practices from multiple faith groups and unifying them into one faith. Okay. So in the context of the church, it would be, for example, taking practices from pagan worship, incorporating it into the church, essentially Christianizing it, and calling it good. That's what syncretism is. Okay. And it's something that is done quite frequently. Uh, the theologians actually call it redeeming it for Christ. When, when, when you point to a practice that originates in pagan worship, they'll say, well, we redeemed that for Christ. Pagans weren't totally wrong. They were kind of right. So we can use this and adopt it into our own faith. Okay? Okay. I just read, and I'm not going to quote a bunch from it. It's a, it's a Christian publication, and I just read today, or I skimmed through what I could stomach, an article on the practice of syncretizing and sort of boasting about how, you know, how pagans, you know, they understand a lot of aspects of God. There's no reason that we can't, you know, take these aspects of their worship that that looks good and feels good and incorporate it into our own. And ended the article uh, basically claiming that paganism and Christianity are unified in the idea that, that, that they're, they're religions for men. They're human religions. And we need rites and rituals. And any Christian that tells you that you should reject those practices, they're from an inhuman religion. 
because they don't understand our need for right and ritual. And anyway, he said this at the end of the article says, whenever someone accuses me of being a Christianized pagan, I smile and wear it as a badge of honor because I'm proud of that. The PhD theologian writing for a pretty, pretty major Christian magazine publication in a modern setting, boasting about syncretizing. That's what he's describing, syncretism. Mm -hmm. Okay. You'll see often, and there's actually a recent magazine cover, there's a, there's a magazine called Wiccan Magazine. And they do a cover every year when April rolls around because they celebrate Easter. And they celebrate it in a way that, let's just put it this way, without the prop crosses and the occasional Jesus name drops, you would have a hard time differentiating between a Wiccan Easter and a Christian one. They use the same imagery. Because mm-hmm. Wiccans still worship essentially what was the Ephesian goddess Diana. It's a mm-hmm. fertility goddess. So they use fertility imagery. Gags, rabbits, things like that. In fact, I recently read from a former Wiccan. She's Christian now. Right. Okay. And she was talking about because she was she was Wiccan for her whole life for a long time. So ran in those circles, worshipped in those circles, had a lot of Wiccan friends. And she talked about how her, her and, and she said that she had this attitude as well. Okay. That her Wiccan friends and her would laugh at Christianity whenever Christmas and Easter would roll around because they worshipped in the same way. And here's an example of the damage that it does. They identified that Christianity borrows from the Wicca religion, the, their pagan religion, for their worship practices, but Wicca and paganism, they don't borrow from Christianity. It doesn't go in reverse. So the way they viewed that was Christianity must be less, less relevant than Wicca because if they have to borrow our practices, that means that our gods must be more relevant than their god. Because if their god was relevant, they wouldn't have to borrow from us. They just do things the way their god says to do it. But they can't do that. They have to borrow from us. For, so our religion must be right. All right. She's, they actually believe that. So the, the, the practice of syncretism hasn't brought more non-believers in. I think it's pushed more away. I just wanted to highlight that. But this is what Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31 says. In refutation of what I just talked about in that article, that practice, correct? Mm-hmm. So he's talking about the pagan worship practices of the people in the land that the, the people of Israel are about to take. Right. Can you say that verse one more time? Sorry. Verse 31. Okay. I'm sorry, chapter and verse. Oh, chapter 12, verse 31. Sometimes I'm thick, and tonight I'm pretty thick. <laughs> okay, sorry. No, you're good. And he says this. You shall not, he's talking about their worship practices. You shall not behave thus toward Yahweh your God for every abominable act which Yahweh hates they have done for their gods for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. What he's saying there, he's saying I won't be worshipped in the way that they worship. He's telling them explicitly do not take their worship practices and incorporate it into worship of me. 
And he's not just saying, it's okay as long as you don't sacrifice your children. What he's saying is, don't worship me their way, for they even burn their sons and daughters. What he's saying here is, their practices remind me of that. So when you incorporate yeah. their, their ways into approaching me, every time you do it, it just reminds me of the horrifying things they've done. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, you do you do the one small thing and you might as well be burdened children. Right. Cause that's what it, that's what it reminds me of. Yeah. So I'm going to be a little necessarily vulgar, vulgar, vulgar here. Cause there's no other way to describe it. When you take practices from fertility cults that in ages past engaged in ritual rape to honor their fertility goddesses and you incorporate those practices into, into, the celebration of the resurrection, what are you reminding him of? Don't, uh, you fall, don't you fall under the purview of chapter 12, verse 31 here, where he says, don't do that. Don't approach me in that way. I don't care how much you sanitize it. It reminds me of what they've done. Mm-hmm. I would say it does. So again, the, the dichotomy between last week's discussion and this week's is the difference between his way and the enemy's way no matter how subtle the enemy's way is, no matter how much the enemy sanitizes it to make it feel right, to make it look right, to make it look like a grandfather clock on the outside, the time's not quite right. Right? I said right a lot there. Probably too much. Right, 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 right. So I'm going to read Revelation chapter 13, just verse 16 from now. And we'll, we'll come back to that chapter at the end for the overarching context. And this is that famous Mark of the Beast reference. I just want to read it so that we have that as our, as our context, okay? And it says, and he, he there being the Antichrist. And again, we're not going to dive into the weeds on who the Antichrist is. It's sufficient to understand that he's essentially Satan's avatar, Satan's ideal man, right? So really what the Antichrist does is what Satan does. He just, he just acts as a mouthpiece for Satan, okay? Right. And he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. I'm just going to stop it right there. Identical egomatic language. Remember last week we, mm-hmm. we showed that, that God calls his law and his Passover. He likens it to a mark on the hand and the forehead. It's identical. I believe it's, I think we talked about it last week. Idiomatically, it represents what you believe and what you do with it. Right, what you know and what you show. And again, we're not going to dive into what the mark is. Could it be physical? Yeah. Is there probably a physical element to it based upon what it says later about preventing you from buying and selling? Maybe. I'm more focused about the spiritual implications of it, though. For the purposes of this discussion, we're focused on the spiritual implications, not not theory crafting on what the mark of the beast is going to look like or what the foundations of it are just as a, as a foundational understanding here. So we're going to, what we're going to do in answering, in answering that question, what is the mark of the beast at a spiritual level? We're going to have to make a couple connections elsewhere in scripture. And in those connections are essentially going to identify the agenda of the antichrist or the agenda of Satan through the antichrist. We're, we're really identifying Satan's agenda. 
mm. in this counterfeit mark. Because that's essentially what this is, right? It's a counterfeit mark, right? Right. Because chronologically, God's mark is listed first in Scripture. Mm. We have that listed out clear back in Exodus and on, right? Right. We don't hear about the enemy's mark until way up here in the book of Revelation. Yeah. I, yeah. It's counterfeit. I, yeah. It's to say, it's not like God was sitting around and go, hey, mark of the beast. I like that. I think I'm going to copy it. Yeah. It happened the other way around. Exactly. The enemy copies God. That's really important to identify this because I think we hear of the mark, and I think I even asked you that last week. You know, when I say the mark in a Christian, in a, in a biblical setting, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And it's the first thing that comes to everybody's mind, mine included, mark of the beast. It's the first thing you think about. Mm-hmm. But it probably shouldn't be that way because the mark of the beast is just a, 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 a secondhand copy of what Yahweh had already established as his mark, the first thing we should think of is his mark. Right. Right. And I'm, again, I'm not going to dive into the weeds on prophecy, but if you read a little bit further in Revelation, we find that that, that mysterious group called the 144,000, they're marked too. They have a seal on their hand and their forehead also. So even, even in the time, in that, in that tribulation time period, there's, there's that dichotomy created there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You know, the beast mark versus God's mark. God's mark is active then too. Again, I'm not going to dive in on, you know, will that be physical? Will we be able to see it? I don't know. Maybe. But the point is, it's who you follow. That's really what the mark is about. Who do you really follow? Do you really follow God or do you follow the enemy? Right? And you don't have to proclaim the enemy's name to follow him. That's the scary thing here. That's why I read from Hosea. They thought they were following God. God, we know you. Yahweh, we know you. What's the big deal? But they were they were professing with their mouth. They followed him. They were giving him lip service. But by their actions, who were they following? The other guy, right? Mm-hmm. They were right. bringing in pagan practices, and they were following after that. And just saying out loud, they followed Yahweh. So apparently what we do matters. Well, were they, were they professing that? They knew God, but fought really following, not really following him. Right. Not because not you said they were professing to follow him. They Did they I were, say it backwards? You wouldn't, I, I think you said they were, you said, and we might have to rewind the tape. You said that. We don't they use were, tapes here. Right. Yeah. It's the 21st century, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> the, no. So you said that they professed to be following him, but they were really following the devil. They, but what, what I remember was they professed to know God, but were really following the devil. Exactly. And that's the, that's the key difference. Yes. Not professing to follow him, professing to know him, but still following the, in pagan practices. Their, their words in lip service to Yahweh weren't aligning with their actions. Right. That was the problem. Right. Yeah. They, yeah. what they, what they said wasn't lining up with what they were doing. I'm going to read one verse from Daniel. It's going to be the first first place where we start making these connections. And in the, it's in chapter 7. I'm just going to read verse 25. In the context, Daniel is seeing the same time period that John saw in the book of Revelation. Okay, in this, in this section of Scripture, he's seeing the tribu- what we would call the tribulation period. So he's talking about the Antichrist here the one that we would call the Antichrist, but really we're talking about Satan because it's just Satan working through this individual. 
which means that this the reason I, I highlight that Satan is at work right now. Right. We don't need to wait until an Antichrist is born before we see this agenda at play. Mm-hmm. Right. This agenda has always been at play. But it says this. He, the Antichrist, will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's where I'm going to stop. So when we're looking for his agenda, what is he seeking to do here? Aside from, aside from killing the saints, it says that his intent is to change the, the, the times and the law. Some translations render that the appointed times in the law, and I think that's a better translation there. It's probably what yours says. It probably no, says, mine says the appointed times. Mine says the set times in the law. Set times is, is good. The, the best translation is probably appointed times. This section is a little bit difficult. So we, this isn't one of those places where we can just look at the Hebrew word and see what it links up with, because actually this section of Daniel was written in Aramaic. It's one of the only, it's one of the only parts of what we call the Old Testament that wasn't written in Hebrew. From somewhere in Daniel, I don't have it written down, somewhere in Daniel chapter 1 through to, I believe, the end of Daniel chapter 7, it's all written in Aramaic because he was in Babylon at the time and that was their language. Mm-hmm. So we can't do a direct connection, but that Aramaic word there for, for appointed times, that is probably the correct rendering. It's the Aramaic equivalent of the Hebrew appointed time, which would be a moed in Hebrew. Okay. The reason that's important is because that's what he calls his Sabbaths, and his holy days, like Passover. He calls them his appointed times. You can go to Numbers chapter 9, verse 2. It says that about the Passover, to keep right. this appointed time, this mo, this moed, this appointed time, right? And just, just as a little rabbit trail, because this is going to matter later, these aren't Jewish traditions. Okay, you hear that a lot from the pulpit. Passover, the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath, it's a Jewish tradition. You won't find that anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere. That attitude about his instructions comes from outside of Scripture, from the opinions of men, foisted onto the text. Nowhere does he say that this is a Jewish tradition. Just to prove that out, I'm gonna, I, I am going to go to, to Numbers chapter 9, because it's in the context of the Passover, specifically. Well, I mean, I kind of like the... The words you just the word you just read or the verse you just read, I don't read it. It doesn't say the Jewish set times and laws. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? And see, I'm glad you highlight that because that's that you know, he I see a lot of Christian theologians when they reference Daniel chapter seven, verse twenty five there, they'll say that, well, these are just talking about secular times and laws. He seeks to change the secular times and laws. What would what would differentiate him from every other ruler that's ever come? Secular right. times and laws change all the time. Nations are constantly making their own little holidays. Nations are constantly adding or removing laws. You know what I mean? Anytime you have a, a, a change in emperors, laws change. Right. That the context of Daniel seven there, in, in that verse specifically, he says he 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 speaks against the most high. The context is he's speaking against God. And the direct context of him speaking against the Most High, it says right after that he seeks to change the appointed times in the law. So if, if, if the agenda it's highlighting here is that he seeks, to, it, he seeks to oppose God, and that's the context of him changing appointed times in law, 
what appointed times and law do you think he's seeking to change? Rome's or God's? Right. I think that's just a way for theologians to escape the obvious implications here. Mm-hmm. Is that the Antichrist satanic agenda is to change or amend or do away with God's appointed times that they themselves would say are Jewish traditions as an excuse to do away with them. Because what does that mean? If the Antichrist satanic agenda is to make excuses to disregard his appointed times in law, and they foist the attitude that it's Jewish tradition to disregard it, what have they just agreed with? God's agenda or the other guys? The other guys. Scary, huh? Mm-hmm. So just to highlight that, in Numbers chapter 9, verse 14, this is in context of the command on the Passover. It says this, If an alien, meaning a foreigner, or a Gentile, a non-Jew, sojourns among you and observes the Passover to Yahweh according to the statute of the Passover and according to its ordinance, so he shall do. Here's the important part. You shall have one statute, both for the Gentile and for the native of the land. One law, one statute for both the Gentile and the Jew. No distinction. Does that sound like God saying this is just Jewish tradition? Don't worry about it if you're not a Jew. Or is he saying, if a foreigner comes among you and they, they choose to love me and they choose to be in covenant with me, they're to be considered no different. They're allowed to celebrate Passover with you and even encouraged to. This isn't Jewish stuff. This is the Father saying this. I wanted to highlight that verse because this is what the Father says. So if anything you're being taught in church disagrees with this verse right here, with what the Father says, you should probably put a witness mark on what the Father says and follow that. You should probably align your spiritual clock to him. Not saying be disrespectful. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm not saying be hateful to those who disagree. I'm saying you individually, you need to align yourself to the Father's word. Right. And I think this is this is this is going to be a pretty good example of why, and we've said it before, why it's good to study and study outside one version. Yes, because of what you just read, I'm going to read the same verse. Okay, and again, I'm reading from the NIV. So, an alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must do so in accordance with its rules and regulations. You must have the same regulations for the alien as the native born. So again, if you, I mean, in in that sense, the word alien is the Gentile, Mm -hmm. right? So, but you could. I haven't looked it up to verify in that verse. It's probably the Hebrew goyim, which translates to Gentile or foreigner, but go ahead. Okay. So, I mean, you could, if you were to take that literal translation, though, it would just be if a non-believer, you know, were to come in and say, you know, he he should do everything that that our church is doing Mm -hmm. because our church is doing it. You know what I mean? Like, so you could get, you could pull that, you, you could pull that out of context and say, well, it's not Jew Gentile, it's. A non-believer versus a believer. Right. And then that would delude the sense of, well, you can set this Jewish stuff aside and do what we do on this holiday. And that then that's right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I want to correct myself. I, actually, alien there in Hebrew is probably ger, 
probably the Hebrew gear. I want to correct myself okay. before before we move on, which is a, a foreigner, right? a non-Jew, right? Non-native born. I'm glad you read your translation because mine says, uh, observes the Passover to Yahweh according to the statute of the Passover, but yours says must. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. Must. Celebrate the Lord's Passover, must do so in accordance with its rules and regulations. Yes. Which, what does that mean? It means that they can't bring their Gentile way of worship into the Passover and do it that way. Right. As long as you're eating some lamb and taking the leaven out, you can take your Gentile ways and inject it in. It's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to, he's saying if they really love me and they really want to be in covenant with me, they're encouraged to obey the to do the Passover, but they have to do it right. They have to do it the right way. That doesn't mean that you can't have innocent traditions in how you, how you do it. There, 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 there are two rules that a tradition has to pass, biblically speaking. It can't override the command in Scripture, which means your tradition can't cancel out something he's commanded, mm-hmm. and it can't add something from pagan worship practices that he prohibits, like in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31. There are a lot of family traditions that you can, you can have in church traditions that are completely innocent, so long as you don't, you don't try to add it to the word and say that it has to be done this way, so long as it doesn't cancel out the word, and so long as it doesn't add something that's abominable to him. Right. Right? Right. Essentially what he's saying here. Mm-hmm. Gentile should observe Passover. They've got to do it my way. They've got to do it my way. If they really love me, that's what they'll do. Essentially what he's saying. But my main highlight point here is that it's not a Jewish tradition. Passover's for everyone. Because ultimately, and this wasn't supposed to be a Passover discussion, but you know, it's fine. <laughs> I love Passover. Ultimately, Passover points to what? It wasn't just pointing back to the Red Sea and, and, and their liberation from Egypt. That whole event was pointing forward to Jesus. It's Jesus. Is he just the Messiah for the Jew? No. He's the Messiah for all of us. He came to offer salvation to every single one of us. Passover is about all of us. So the, the, it's, it's baffling to me why we would reject that. The Passover isn't just about the salvation of, of the 12 tribes from Egypt, which Egyptians came with them too. That's a side note. But it's pointing, to, it's pointing forward to our redemption from sin, from death, for everyone who believes. This Passover is very much, should be, a, a, an all-believer holiday. This isn't something that should just be for the Jewish people. It's for all of us. Right. So rounding back, we learn from Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, that the goal of the Antichrist is to change the appointed times in the law, to refute the Most High by changing his appointed times in his law. Right? That would mm-hmm. be what I would call the goal. I'm going to flip forward. I'm flipping everywhere. I told you this going to be, we were going to be all over the place on this one because there's a lot of connections that I want to make. We're going to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 to identify something else about the Antichrist that's very important before we look at how does this apply to us. And it's so easy to scroll right past it. Sorry again, those of you listening, if you hear some background talking, there's a, a Bible study going on in the other room from where we record, and we don't have a proper sound-protected space. So you're just going to have to bear with us. You ready? Uh, I you? got to Second Thessalonians. Did you did you say the chapter and verse? I did not hear you. I, I chapter two. We're going to start reading at verse three. Okay. 
I well, if you did, you say, question. I'm sorry. If you did, I didn't ask it. I was just waiting because I didn't hear it. Oh, I did say so it. So I didn't know if you said it. I, but, I said it. Oh, I just missed it. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you missed it. That's okay. I think I'm only going to read up to probably to verse 8. We're going to start in verse 3. And it says this, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy, unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is, a, is revealed, the son of destruction. He's talking about the Antichrist here. The future revelation, the future revealing of who the Antichrist is. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. See the parallel with Daniel 7 there? Mm -hmm. Speaks against the Most High. Verse 5, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness, here's the key, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. I'm going to stop there. I know it seems a little confusing his wording there. And this isn't intended to be a prophecy discussion. But what he's saying here, he's talking about the Antichrist figure. He hasn't been revealed yet. He'll be revealed during the tribulation in the future. Mm -hmm. Okay. But he is talking about the spirit of Antichrist. Okay. So if the goal of the Antichrist is to change the, the appointed times in the law, right? That's what the physical Antichrist will do. The spirit of Antichrist has that same goal, right? Right. The spirit of Antichrist is essentially the movement of that goal, the movement of that agenda into practice. And what did Paul say? It's already underway. It's already at work. He's saying that 2,000 years ago when he wrote this letter, it was already active and at work in the world. And I believe he's saying it's already active and at work in the community of believers. Because who do you need to deceive? Does Satan need to deceive a pagan? Nope. No. Already done. Does he need to deceive an atheist? No. Already got them. If he, if he wants to change God's ways... God's appointed time in law, who does he need to deceive to do it? Believers. Believers. He needs to weasel his way into the church, inject his spirit into the church, and get them, get them to activate his agenda. His goal, which is changing the appointed times in the law. What's the implications of that? If it was active 2,000 years ago in Paul's day, what's the implications for us today? Say it's absolutely active today if it was then and probably already made a lot more headway if he was seeing evidence of it then i think we can probably identify that a lot of a lot of work has been accomplished by the enemy mm -hmm. and that's where i come to the place where i want to highlight a, a just a couple quotes from the church from essentially the church and this is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restrain myself a little bit and not dive too much in the weeds, but I need to show how this has been at play in the church. Right. Okay? So that we know what to avoid and what to be mindful of. First thing I want to do in doing that, I, I want to talk about a guy named Constantine for a second. Do you know who Constantine the Great was? Yes, but 
Don't put me on the spot. I'm not explaining it. You're good. Historically, yes, I know who he is. He was a Roman emperor who ruled in the uh, the early fourth century, and he is regarded by most Christian scholars as the first Christian emperor. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the reason they believe that is because, well, he kind of was, but he was very syncretized. Just put it that way. Mm -hmm. Okay, he. His conversion story, supposedly, he he was at war, and I believe it was the Battle of Milvian Bridge, I believe is when this supposedly occurred, and what, what he was a sun, just, just putting this out there, you can research this, it's it's readily available. He was a sun god worshiper. That's what he, he worshipped, mm-hmm. Sol Invictus, the, the, the venerable sun, the unconquerable sun, they called it. He, he worshipped the sun. Okay? And you're going to see some the, the reason the, there's a reason that's important. Allegedly, he claimed at the Battle of Milvian Bridge, and I believe it was in 312, 312 AD, he supposedly saw a sign. And what he claimed was that he saw the sign of the cross in the sky, forming the sky with the sun that he worshiped. Okay. Right. And he believed this was the sign of Christ. And afterward, he had victory Mm -hmm. and supposedly that's when he became a christian and there's a lot of into the weed stuff right there's a lot of politics going on at the time okay but he adopted christianity at that point and most christian scholars would tell you that this is where he became a full-blown christian right he renounced his paganism and he started essentially leading, helping to, to lead the church in Rome. Right. There's a few problems with that, though. One of the biggest problems with that timeline is the Arch of Constantine. So the Arch of Constantine was, it's still there today. You can look it up. It's a big, it's a big massive stone arch with a lot of carvings on it. It's covered in carvings, right? And the Arch of Constantine was to commemorate that victory, the Battle of Milvian Bridge, and it was commemorated in 315 AD, three years later, full three years later. All the carvings all over this massive arch. You know how much Christian symbolism's on it? Probably close to zero, if not zero. 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 Nothing even ostensibly Christian anywhere on this thing. It's loaded, though, with imagery of the sun god. Loaded with it. Supposedly, he converted to Christianity full bore three years earlier in 312 AD, and yet the arch that his senate commemorated has nothing but references to the the pagan sun god all over it. That's a little bit of a problem Mm -hmm. right off the bat for the the timeline that we're looking at. In 321 AD, he gives the Edict of Constantine. It's what it's called. This is nine years later. Okay. Okay, after he converted to Christianity. And he gives a law. And it says this, quote, On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in cities rest. Talking about Sunday. Essentially what he did, nine years after converting to Christianity, passes a law that on the venerable... I don't know what caused that feedback. That was bad. 
My apologies. Weird. I can't hear it. Oh, yeah. I know you can. Oh, you can say weird that way you can pretend. Okay, sorry. On the venerable day of the sun, which is Sunday, he passes a law commanding that Sunday be a day of rest. And actually mandated that you work on the Saturday Sabbath, which is the biblical Sabbath. Mandated it. Hmm. It's interesting, huh? Mm-hmm. Nine years. I'm going to repeat that again. Nine years after converting to Christianity, what's he do? He passes a law making Sunday a new Sabbath, commanding those who honor the biblical Sabbath to work. In, in other words, enforcing a, a, a decree that forced them to disobey God and said it was all in honor of the venerable son. Not Jesus. The sun. The one in the sky. Yes. S-U-N. S-U-N. It's interesting. So the I reason mean, that segue, it, go ahead. Do you, so do you have, I mean, have you studied that out of, of that's why it's actually called Sunday? It is. That okay. is why it's called Sunday. Okay. It was, we'll get to a couple of these things in a second. Um, most of the days of the week are named after pagan deities, yeah. including Saturday. Saturday is named after Saturn. Mm-hmm. Uh, biblically, there's no names given. It's just first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day, called the Sabbath. The only day biblically that's named is the Sabbath. The rest are just given nu- numerical right. designations. We name the days later. Thursday's named after Thor. Yeah. Saturday's named after Saturn. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I, I was wondering if you had studied studied that out because I always hear the question, well, where did we get where do we get our names for our days? Well, they're actually deities. Yeah. If you look it up. Yeah. But I just want to highlight that because it's claimed that we worship on Sunday. And I'm not, you, worship, you can worship any day of the week. The problem is changing God's word to say that we're taking it upon ourselves to change his Sabbath. That's different. Right? I don't have an issue with worshiping on Sunday. But if you're adopting an ideology that says we can ignore the biblical Sabbath and tell, tell the Father no and change the Sabbath... It doesn't matter how you twist things to justify the change. It really goes back to Constantine, who was a sun god worshiper and was more comfortable worshiping on Sunday. Right. Okay. Yeah, there's no... Well, we we follow a Sabbath. It's you follow the Sabbath. The Sabbath. So we're going to jump forward a little bit to the what was called the Council of Nicaea, the first Council of Nicaea. And that's why this this segue about Constantine was important, because this council was actually presided over. It was convened by Constantine in trying to remember the date. One of those things I should have written down and didn't. I think I'll forgive you. I appreciate it. (laughs) Let me look it up real quick, because I don't want to get this wrong. 325. It was 325 AD. So just three years, just four years after he gives that decree, changing the Sabbath. Okay. So Mm -hmm. four years later, he convenes the first council of Nicaea. And several things were done at that council, not all of them bad, but they were very focused on a controversy. And the controversy 
was on Passover. It was surrounding Passover. And it was about the timing of it. And the argument was there were two groups. One group wanted to obey the Bible and do the Passover on the day that the Bible says, which is the 14th day of, of the month that Passover falls in. So you would, you would figure the month and day according to the biblical mandate. Mm-hmm. The opponents wanted to change. They wanted to divorce the date of Passover away from the Bible. And they wanted to change it to a different date. And Constantine was in favor of this group. Obviously, he didn't mm-hmm. care about the Bible. He didn't care about it when it came to the Sabbath. Right. Why would he care about it here? And this is where it gets interesting. So you remember why he changed the Sabbath, right? In that edict of Constantine, it was to venerate the sun, sun. not Jesus. This is after his conversion, to venerate the sun. He wanted to change the Passover dating away from the Bible and link it directly with the vernal equinox instead. It's the spring equinox. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because sun god worshipers have always venerated the spring equinox because the equinox is tied to the path of the sun. Right. And it's considered a high holy day in sun god worship. You can do a quick Google search and verify what I'm saying. So they wanted to, to bring the Passover away. It wasn't called Easter then. That didn't come until later. So I'm not, I'm not making that claim. But... They wanted to remove the Passover away from the biblical mandate and establish it in conjunction with the equinox instead. They wanted to make it the first Sunday after the equinox, which really, they're, they're not even emulating the Passover at that point. They're really emulating the, the Holy Day first fruits, which is always the first Sunday after Passover. So they were mixing and mingling. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? They were syncretizing. There were some elements of the biblical mandate that they liked. They wanted to keep that, but they wanted to mix in other things like the equinox. And shove that in. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's where it gets chilling, though, is when Constantine gives his reason. So they, they made the decree and they actually made that's That's when they make the decree to change the Passover to the dating method that we use today. It's the same dating method we use for Easter today. Okay. When he wrote his reason. Right. This is what he wrote. Okay. So and, and, and again, to reiterate, we say Easter today, but we're in this sense. It was an edict to change Passover. Yes. Easter didn't come till later. Like little measures. Change the change the witness mark two degrees then, two degrees a couple centuries later, you keep changing the witness mark a little bit at a time. Mm-hmm. First thing you do is change the date. And remember what what does Daniel say that the Antichrist spirit seeks to do? To change what? The appointed times. Change the appointed times. Shift them a little bit, right? Shift mm-hmm. the timing. No big deal. Shift the name. No big deal. Shift the way we celebrate. No big deal. Century upon century upon century until now we come to a place where Easter, it doesn't even resemble Passover biblically. Right. Not even a little bit. Right. So in here, the first thing we're doing, he said, a, a, ch- a change appointed times and laws. Mm-hmm. And he put them in that order. And I find it, I don't know prophetically funny, ironic, maybe something worth note that here we're changing times first and then the laws come later. Right. Yep. Still in increments, but the order in which we're doing it. And that's why I wanted to highlight that reference from Thessalonians that what Paul saw at work then never stopped. 
never went away. It just kept chiseling away, chiseling away. We're going to see that as we as we look at these other quotes, because you'll see a progression. You'll see a progression of the, the heart condition. Okay, so this is the first council of Nicaea, and this is Constantine in his own words as to, to why they can justify making this change. Quote, It appeared an unworthy thing that in the celebration of this most holy feast we should follow the practice of the Jews, who have impiously defiled their hands with enormous sin and are therefore deservedly afflicted with blindness of soul. Let us then have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crowd, for we have received from our Savior a different way. End quote. No biblical justification. No, well, this is what happened when Jesus rose, so that's why we're changing it now. I hate the Jews. I don't want to worship the way they do. I don't even want to worship on the same day. That's why we're going to change it, because I hate Jews. And I find it interesting coming from a Roman emperor, laying the blood of Jesus solely at the feet of the Jews when it was his empire, his predecessor, one of his governors and his military that beat him mercilessly, tried him, convicted him, and nailed him to the cross to begin with. Do the bad Jewish leaders have guilt in that too? Absolutely yes. To act like the Roman Gentiles had nothing to do with it is just biblically ignorant. Biblically ignorant and stupidly bigoted. I can't, I can't word it strongly enough, and I don't feel bad about wording it that way. Any, and I see this attitude among Christians today, the attitude that the Jews killed, killed Jesus. I've heard that phrase, Christ killers. Hate to break it to you, Gentiles had a little bit to do with it too. And you want to be specific, every single one of us, unless we've lived our entire life perfect, had a hand in nailing him to the cross. Stop trying to blame those people to justify your anti-Semitism, because that's all it is. Mm-hmm. It's Jew hate, and it's disgusting. And no Christian doctrine should be built upon a foundation of Jew hate. None. But that's what we find here. We find that he changed Passover, convened a council, and led them to change Passover solely based upon his hatred of the Jews. And I can't help but think that that Jew hatred had something to do with his edict of Constantine, criminalizing anyone who kept the Sabbath. Mm Because who would primarily be keeping the Sabbath? Mostly Jews, right? It was a flimsy excuse to criminalize the Jews. Coming from somebody who Christian theology boasts about being the first Christian Roman emperor. What a blessing he was to us. Mm. So moving on from there, we come to the Council of Laodicea. And it was in the 360s AD. There's a little bit of disagreement on the precise timing of this council. And who exactly convened it. But it's pretty well accepted that it was Constantine's son and, and successor that actually convened this. And we, it's interesting because it seems like what Constantine, his father, started, he brought to fruition, carried along a little bit further. Right. And again, it's another council where several things were accomplished there. There's one thing in particular that I want to highlight. And you'll see why when we get to the end of this. And it's in canon number 29 of the decisions they made at that council. And it says this. Christians must not Judaize. Judaize means 
by the way, it's just a derogatory term for doing things the way the Jews do. So if we're going to falsely define the Father's commands as Jewish traditions, obeying the Father's commands is considered Judaizing. See the circular reasoning here? Yeah. Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's day. They've defined the Lord's day as Sunday, by the way. I'm sorry, I know I'm stopping a lot. That's a problem, too. You can't find biblically where it defines the Lord's day as Sunday. And even if you could, nowhere does it say that replaces the Sabbath. Lord's day is a reference from the first the first chapter of Revelation where John talks about being in the spirit on the Lord's day. Mm-hmm. He could have been talking about the Sabbath for all we know. And even if he was talking about Sunday, he doesn't say that I, I, I replace that with, I replace the Sabbath with that day. You have to take the opinions of men centuries later and foist it upon the text for that. Mm. Okay. Let me read this again without stopping and interrupting myself. Right. <laughs> I don't need you to interrupt me. I do it on my own. <laughs> Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day, rather honoring the Lord's day. And if they can, resting then on Sunday as Christians. But here's the, the real nefarious part of this. But if any shall be found to be Judaizers, let them be anathema from Christ. What that means is let them be excommunicated sent to rotten hell. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what they're saying there. So you see what Constantine started with the Edict of Constantine in 321 AD as a secular law being brought into the church and treated like a church law. And anyone who disobeyed this, they were kicked out of the church. Do you see how we got to a place we are today where the Sabbath is completely ignored and we all just honor the Sunday instead? All right. It didn't start because there's some biblical reason for it. It started because these early church councils who were wildly anti-Semitic decided they didn't want anything in common with Jews. So we had to create something new. That's not good. That's not a good foundation to build your faith on. Interesting too, just as a side note, part of what the Council of Laodicea sought to do was determine the canon of Scripture. And they actually wanted to reject the book of Revelation as inspired. And I can't help but wonder if they took issue or umbrage with what John said about, or really Jesus says about the church of Laodicea, given that this was the council of Laodicea doing exactly what Jesus said the church of Laodicea would do. Yeah. Can't help but wonder if that wasn't why they really didn't want to believe that Revelation was inspired text. I wouldn't want to believe that, too, if I was in their shoes. Moving forward again, we come to a guy named John Chrysostom. And I want to read this because it very much highlights the heart condition where these decisions were being made from. And this comes from, this quote comes from a series of sermons he did. So that Council of Laodicea was probably in 360 to 364 AD, these sermons, John Chrysostom lived about the same time, but these these series of sermons came in like the 380s AD. Okay. And they were a series of sermons essentially against the Jewish people. Wildly anti-Semitic. So I'm just going to read this one quote. Sorry. I'm going to read this one quote from him from one of these sermons, and he says this, Shall I tell you of their plundering, their covetousness, their abandonment of the poor, he's talking about the Jews, 
their thefts, their cheating and trade. The whole day long will not be enough to give you an account of these things, for I am persuaded to call the fasting of the Jews a table of demons because they slew God. The synagogue is worse, again, no mention of the Romans that did it. Continuing, the synagogue is worse than a brothel. It is the den of scoundrels and the repair of wild beasts, the temple of demons devoted to idolatrous cults, the refuge of brigands and debaucheries, and the cavern of devils, a criminal assembly of Jews, a place of meeting for the assassins of Christ, a house worse than a drinking shop, a den of thieves, a house of ill fame, a dwelling of iniquity, the refuge of devils, a gulf and an abyss of perdition. I would say the same things about their souls. As for me, I hate the synagogue. I hate the Jews for the same reason. Good grief. That wasn't a one-off statement. This was given in a sermon. He planned this, wrote this, edited this, prayed about this, followed through with speaking this, and then gave multiple sermons and addendum to this. And Christianity calls this John Chrysostom. Christian theologians refer to him as, quote, the greatest preacher of his time. Thanks. And that's the hatred for the Jewish people coming from him. I read that just to highlight the anti-Semitism that seemed to be driving the direction that doctrine was taking at that pivotal early stage of church history, right? When the foundations were being laid that we continue to build our doctrines on today. It's a problem. And the last thing I'm going to read, the last quote, is from the Second Council of Nicaea. And this was convened in 787. Just to show that this wasn't just like a, a short period of time and we, we finally came to our senses and broke out of it. This is several centuries later. Okay, this right. is 787 AD. And this is canon number eight of that council. I'm just going to read the whole canon out. It's not super long. Since some of those who have come from the religion of the Hebrews mistakenly think to make a mockery of Christ, who is God, pretending to become Christians, but denying Christ in private by both secretly continuing to observe the Sabbath and maintaining other Jewish practices, we decree that they shall not be received to communion or at prayer or into the church. Again, just because they're acknowledging Sabbath. They're not allowed communion, according to them, excommunicated. Continuing, but rather, let them openly be Hebrews according to their own religion. They should not baptize their children or buy, but if one of them makes his conversion with a sincere faith and heart and pronounces his confession wholeheartedly, disclosing their practices and objects in the hope that others may be refuted and corrected, such a person should be welcomed and baptized along with his children, and care should be taken that they abandon Hebrew practices. However, if they are not of this sort, they should certainly not be welcomed. Disobey the Father or get out of our church. 787 AD. They wrote that canon all together. Voted on it, and it passed. Yikes. <laughs> what can you say? Right. That's the foundation we've built our doctrines on. And it's interesting to me, the focal point. We've been talking about whose mark are we wearing, right? The focal point for those quotes were heavily, heavily 
geared toward strong-arming believers into rejecting the Passover, the biblical Passover, and the Sabbath. And just classifying random parts of God's law as Hebrew practices that should be rejected or you're kicked out of the church. All three of God's marks. All three of the things that God strongly calls a mark upon those who follow after him, the early church attacked. And what are we told by Daniel that the the spirit of the Antichrist seeks to do? Change the appointed times and laws. We define it as Jewish tradition, right? Mm-hmm. An easy way to accomplish that. Build some bigotry. Build some Jew hate. Convince people that these practices are Jewish things. Therefore, you can't do that because you hate the Jews too much. It's disturbing. And where's it led? Led to increasing degrees of syncretism, right? Right. Which is directly in conflict with Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31. But that's one of God's laws. It's Jewish tradition. We don't have to worry about it. The more you classify God's ways as just Jewish things, the more you can excuse disobeying him and incorporating, incorporating that in your worship practices. I'm trying to hold myself back from telling you what your conclusion should be, right? Right. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm showing you what the Father says, and I'm showing you what the men we revere say. And they're in conflict. Right. The Father is in conflict with these men that we revere so highly. Right. That was actually going to be a point that I brought up in closing was if you don't if you don't believe something's true, find proof otherwise, and we'll we'll discuss it. Yeah, you know, like it's yeah. you're doing you're doing the two plus two, mm-hmm. right? You're just presenting the facts. If you have a fact or can dispute scripture, then or a scripture that disputes the scriptures we've given, bring them up. Yeah. We'll discuss them. We'll look into them. I'm happy to have a conversation. Right? Right. My goal is to follow the Father, period. And I will amend myself to do that. But I cannot agree with these quotes that I read. Right. I can't. They make it clear what the what the underlying agenda was. And the underlying agenda was just we hate Jews. So we're going to build our theology around our Jew hate. Can't do that. And I'm not saying that your pastor is doing the same thing. But, and I've been guilty of this and probably still am am in some ways, if we're honest with ourselves and we identify that our practice is built upon that foundation rather than upon the firm foundation of the Father's Word, we need to shift our home to the Father's foundation. We have to shift our witness mark to align with His. It doesn't matter what church history says. shouldn't. Church doesn't save you. Father does, through Jesus. He saves you. The church doesn't save you. Church is a good place to go to have camaraderie and, as Ronnie says, have your fail-safes and, you know, serve together and and uplift each other, but it doesn't save you. And if your church is leading you away from the Father, you better follow the Father. Right? Right. Your church can't bring you into the wedding feast, especially if your church is convincing you to push the robes away. I was just going to say, your church isn't going to be able to put the robes on you. Yeah. Funny, our mind was the same place at the same time. Yeah, you beat me to it, darn. (laughs) Competition. 
and I'll, you know, we'll wrap up here pretty quick, but I want to, I want to highlight the, it seems like for most people, most people I know don't hate Jewish people, right? right? I highlighted this to show these guys that built the foundation for us. There was something nefarious going on there. Right. I don't, I don't believe that about your pastor. This is an attack on you or your pastor. That's not what I'm saying. I think what's happened though, what's that? Or you. Right. Right. I think what's happened though, are, are these nefarious actors convinced us to redefine some things. And the main thing they, they, they focused on was redefining the father's word as Jewish tradition. That's why I mentioned that earlier, right? You Mm -hmm. don't find that biblically, but they, they, they managed to convince us that these things are Jewish things. So we've redefined them. Do you know what assumptive language is? It's when you make assumptions. Yeah. It's when you, based upon what somebody says, not what they do. Correct. Yeah. You, and in this context, it's you take a, a definition that may not be accurate, that's outside of the context, and you apply your counter-contextual definition upon the text. Mm-hmm. And then you read the text based upon your definition, which leads you to a false conclusion. Okay, when right. you don't allow the text and the context to define itself, talking about the Bible here, mm-hmm. when you don't allow the Father's Word to define itself, and you take external definitions and apply it, you come to a false conclusion. Right. Okay. I'm gonna play a little bit of a game with you. I hope, hope I get this right. I don't have it written down. Okay. But it's a game they play in science classes a lot mm-hmm. to kind of highlight how this can how quickly this can happen when you shift a definition and it leads you to a false conclusion. Right. So I'm gonna ask you a couple questions and I just want very simple yes, no answers. Okay. Okay. Don't think about it too too hard. Okay. You might ruin it because you're you're a smart guy. I'm worried about you ruining this. Because you're intelligent, <laughs> and you might see through this, and a lot of people won't. So well, that's kind of you to say. Like, well, yeah, you're welcome. Do you believe that cats have nine tails? No, no, really. You don't believe a cat has nine tails? No, no. Okay, well, I think I can prove you wrong. Because I do. Okay, and I think I can prove you wrong. Okay, can we at least let's let's establish a baseline? Okay, foundation. Can we both agree that no cat has eight tails? You said nine tails. But I'm, I'm establishing a baseline, though, because I don't okay. believe cats have eight tails. Can we agree that no cat has eight tails? Yes or no? No. <laughs> we can't agree. So you think cats have eight tails? No. No. So no cat has eight tails? Yes. Yes. Okay. No cat has eight tails. We agree. Don't overthink. I can see it in your eyes. You're overthinking this. You don't believe cats have nine tails. I do. Okay. I'm getting us to agree that no cat has eight tails. Right. Okay. Okay. We agree. Yes. Okay. Pretend I'm handing you two boxes. Okay. Okay. The box in your one hand has one cat. Okay. The other box has no cats. Okay. Has no cat in that box. Okay. How many tails does that cat have? In the box. One. One tail. So how many tails are in that box? One. Okay. How many tails are in this this box? Zero. Zero. No cat. Interesting. So no cat has... I can't tell if you're like trying to figure out like... Okay, sorry, go ahead. No, you're good. Keep going. No, go ahead. What were you going to say? I'm like, I can't understand if like you're like trying to think through... The wording of the of the 
of the wording of what we're trying to get through or if you're like really like you're saying interesting i didn't expect you to say that like <laughs> you on my honest response to that i'm doing a little bit of both okay this is fun people are getting to know us yeah so would it be accurate to say then that that mm-hmm. cat in that box has one more tail than that box has yes yes and no cat has eight tails. Right. So one plus eight is nine. Because no cat has eight tails. No right. cat's in that box. Right. So no cat in that box has eight tails. And you just agree that that cat over there has one more tail. So eight plus one, that cat has nine tails. I see what you did there. Change the definition of no cat, right? Right. That's how assumptive language works. And that's how quickly it can happen. Right. Right. And it so quickly leads you to a false conclusion. Right. At some point in that conversation, I changed the definition of no cat. No cat went from being zero cats to being a cat named no cat, which led us to add tails, create nine tails. Clearly nonsense. Right. Right. It's clearly nonsense, clearly wrong, but based upon assumptive language of definition, that's the conclusion it led us to. Right. And Christianity does the same. Christian theology does the same with Scripture. We take something, like the definition of Jewish tradition, and apply it in places to the text where it doesn't belong, where it even disagrees with what the Father clearly says. But because we've accepted the definition, more apparently than we've accepted the Word of God as truth, we apply that definition to the text and come to counter-contextual counter-biblical conclusions that can't be validated by the text. That doesn't, that can't happen as quickly as this nine cats thing, right? right? But when you have 2,000 years to work with, like Satan has, with the church, I think we can see how we got to where we were. Mm -hmm. From a sun god worshiper like Constantine to an anti-Semite like John Chrysostom to today, where we've just accepted the definitions that those nefarious actors gave us. We don't really dig into the reason why those individuals sought to change things. We just accept it as true. Right. Why becomes truth with age. Right. And we've white, we've whitewashed it to the scent, to the, to the tune of, well, like you said, it's, we've, we've taken it back for Christianity. So, but no matter how you whitewash it over the years, it doesn't change the foundation that it was made. Correct. And that foundation, you know, inherently affects the trajectory of the building. Yes. This is why the witness mark matters. It's the whole reason that God gives us a mark to align ourselves to, so that if there's ever a point in time where there's confusion, we can just look to his mark. We know we'll always be aligned with him. If we accept his word as true, if we accept that the things that he calls important to him. If we love him enough to make it important to us too, we'll always find our way back home. It's like our compass, right? It's another analogy we could use, like the compass. You know, it always points you north, right? It always points you north. You follow it, right? Right. You have to follow it. His mark is, is the compass point point us, pointing us home to him. And the enemy wants us aligned a couple degrees 
We don't ever quite make it. We end up being like that guy in the wedding feast that says, no, I've accepted a different way. I want the reward. I want to sit here. I want you to serve me. I want you to cater to me. I want you to give me the meal. And I want you to give me eternal life. But I don't want to do things your way. We can't have that attitude with him. Right? Right. And I think we need to show in our life now that we're willing to hear his call and respond to it. I'm not saying that you're damned if you don't agree with what I'm presenting here. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying to take it up with God. Right? Do your own research. Test it. Test it against his word, first and foremost. Pray about it. And seek after him. Right? Right. We need to at least show that we're willing to hear his call. And not be like that first group that when he called, they went off to their own way. They didn't even want to show up. We don't want to be like the guy that when we get there, we're filthy and unwilling to change. Because our traditions have become like our God, and our church has become like our Savior. When it all, it all should have always been about Him. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I want to go back, before I close this out, to Revelation chapter 13. I said we'd return to that to read the context a little bit there. And it kind of drives this whole point home. And we're going to back up from, we read verse 16. We're going to start in verse 11. Okay. You ready? Yep. Then I saw another beast. Okay, first off, I'm not going to dive into the weeds on the different beasts. We have, you know, this is this is about, you know, the, the Antichrist kingdom at the time of tribulation. We probably have an Antichrist figure, and we probably have somebody serving as like his false prophet. That mm-hmm. That could be like what this second beast is. I think with the Antichrist, you have him pushing a secular government. I think the second beast is probably his his religious agenda, which right. is what we're focused on right now, just to establish that context. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It performs great signs, and I'm going to stop there. It goes on to, it talks about the signs and wonders that he's able to emulate and how it leads to the mark of the beast. The important part there is he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. Who's the lamb? When we say the lamb, who are we talking about? Jesus. Jesus. Who would the beast be? Who would be the entity behind the beast? The devil. Or the dragon too, right? Or, yeah, yeah. I I've, said beast. I meant to say you dragon. You meant to I'm say sorry. dragon. I was because I was going to um correlate the a dragon with the serpent. Yes. The dragon is Satan. I'm sorry. I, that's what I meant to say. Yeah. So he had two horns like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. What's that telling us? I think there's a deeper implication here. It looks like one thing, but talks like another. I agree. I think what we're being told here is this Antichrist agenda has the form of a lamb, but the substance of a dragon. I think it looks like Jesus. It looks like what we expected Jesus to look like based upon what we were taught. 
but it has the substance of the dragon. What does that kind of sound like? It sounds like a witness mark that's ever so slightly off. Mm -hmm. It looks like a regular clock. The time's off. It's telling us the wrong time. It looks like a clock, but what it's telling us is wrong. I think that's what we've shown us here. I think that's the warning here. It looks right. It appeals to us. I think it could even deceive some Christians. Right. So I but think that's exactly what it was meant to do. That's the point. But the message is a dragon message, and according to Daniel, chapter 7, verse 25, the objective is built around the premise of changing the appointed times, Sabbath, Passover, etc., and the law, which is exactly what we've shown early church councils sought to do and succeeded in doing. That's the important point. They succeeded. Mm -hmm. They succeeded. And we follow along. We treat everything to the left of Matthew like it's relevant to us. It's good for stories. Sometimes those stories can teach us some things. Good for That's some it. lessons, yeah. Yeah. Beyond that, I don't need it. You've rejected the witness mark. It's interesting. Mark, there in Revelation chapter 13, verse 16, for Mark of the Beast. It's the Greek word karagma. Superficially, Mark is a good translation for it. Superficially, that's what it translates. It could be a stamp, and it can also be translated as a badge of servitude. Sounds a lot like the Hebrew oath, right? Mm -hmm. Very same thing. Here's the interesting distinction. The Greek karagma can also translate as a graven thing or a statue. An idol. It has a dual translation. Hmm. It can be a mark, or it can be a graven image. So it's almost like a syncretized mark. Right. It's the implications we have with the Greek term mark that are used in reference to the mark of the beast. It's like the Hebrew oath, but polluted with idolatry. Mixed in a little bit. The Hebrew oath is pure. It's God's mark. But karagma there looks like a mark. Looks like the right thing, but it's polluted. Mm -hmm. Sad things brought into it that God calls graven. As the lambs form, dragon substance. So I guess in closing, that's a lot to take in. And I'm not going to lecture. Presented the information. You can do with that what you will. But I think you really need to ask yourself, and I think we all do, I think I need to ask myself this daily with everything I do. Whose witness mark are you aligned with? Who's really and if you believe it's the father's can you prove it can you dig into his word and prove it through his word alone or do you have to depend upon the sort of individuals that we quoted today I would prove it through his word and I would shift the mark if your timing's off do you have any final thoughts no just um Again, you know, this is a discussion. You've given us two plus two to arrive at four. If, if you disagree with something or if you can find facts disputing ours, let's have a discussion about it. Right. A respectful discussion. I'll be respectful to you. Yep. Don't just come at me yeah. with, with anger. 
Because I, I know yeah. conviction, conviction's tough. Believe me, the Spirit's laid some heavy convictions on me. You know, he laid some on me last week. <laughs> We're always a work in progress. We're all works in progress. This is not an attack. This right. presentation is not an attack. This discussion, I should say, it's not an attack upon you or anybody else. But I care about you. I do. I care about you. It, I don't just care about myself. I want to make it. I ain't gonna lie to you. I want to make it. I want to be in the wedding feast and not the guy that's saying no to the clean clothes. I don't think I deserve to be there. I'll be honest with you. I have a hard time getting past my guilt. I've done a lot wrong. I'm going to be fully transparent. This is not an attack upon you like I'm sitting on some lofty throne in my own mind. I don't believe I'm worthy. Maybe that's maybe that in and of itself is a sin. I have a hard time with that. I do. Right. Bob, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I just kicked the table. My foot's numb. I really am sorry, Bob. <laughs> I know you would strongly disagree with me on that. But it's hard. Right. It's hard to get past your guilt sometimes. The point I'm making is I'm not I'm not sharing this out of pride or conceit or from a position of believing I'm better than you. I don't. Most of you listening, I'm probably not even worthy to wash your feet. <laughs> right. I'll be honest. But he's laid it on me. I think it matters to him, and I care. I don't want to get there and find out that people missed it. I don't, you know, if, if, if I'm allowed in, <laughs> right. I don't want to get there and find out that people didn't make it because I stayed silent when I should have spoken. Right. I think that's, that's a lot of the, what a lot of people miss is they, the conviction comes so strong. They don't, they don't realize that the words that you're saying is because you don't want to be on the other side of those gates when they close watching them close on somebody that if you would have said this, they would have been there with you. Exactly. I think that's, it's kind of the same reason why I've, why I've been so caught up with the marriage and family aspect of it. Yeah. Cause the last thing that I want is to be on one side of the gate, my family to be on the other. Yeah. Like that to me would be worse than not getting in at all. Oh yeah. That'd be awful. So and that's why I say that because I feel like you take that one step further and you feel that for everybody. I'm not saying that I don't, but you, I feel like maybe that's what you were chosen to do is to go after those people that nobody else does. I could share a couple things with you on how confirming that is. Because that is precisely what he hit me with. And this is, we're going off, off into left field a little bit. Right. But that was something he really laid on me and, and confirmed to a couple other individuals that he's looking for people who are willing to seek after the forgotten. The ones that have fallen through the cracks. Because churches are so focused on success and numbers. That I think there's some people that they've. I don't want this to sound like an indictment because it isn't fully, but I think there's some people that just get overlooked. Mm -hmm. They can't tithe like other people can. Yeah. They don't, they can't dress as nice as other people can. I feel like they get overlooked and I feel like he's, I feel like 
he's calling some individuals who are willing to seek after people that aren't going to bring fame and notoriety to themselves. I think he wants ministers. I'm not saying I am one. I'm saying I think he wants ministers right now who are willing to share his word, even if it will, even if it will mean zero personal success for themselves. Because I don't think there's a lot of that right now. Right. I think everybody wants to be the next YouTube sensation. You know, and I'm not going to lie. That'd be, it'd be nice to have success. I'm not going to say I hate the idea of success. Right. But we have to be willing, if he calls us on a road that isn't successful by worldly standards, to follow, as you said earlier, in that calling. We need to respond to that call and follow. Because those people matter too. God isn't a numbers game God. He cares about individuals. The idea of relationship doesn't imply numbers, right? He doesn't right. want a cloud of people so he can say, ah, look at how many people I have. He cares about an individual relationship with every single one of them, right? He's the God that says he leaves 99 in safety. He leaves them in a place of safety for context, but he leaves the 99 to rove and, and roam across the countryside seeking that one that was lost. Because bragging about 99 isn't enough for him. Because he wants that one. He's unwilling to lose one. And it's not about bragging about a hundred. It's about he is afraid of that one being lost. And we have to have that same heart. And that's what this, that's what this is about. This, in the, this isn't about me boasting or pointing the finger at you. This is about me seeing an ox in the mud and having a heart to pull the ox out. Even if I get kicked a few times in the process. Right? Because I'm more concerned with your well-being than with my own. That's where he wants us to be. And I'm, I wasn't that guy. That's a radical change for me. Because there was a time where I, if I'm being honest, I probably didn't care. Probably didn't care. Said I did. Thought I did. Emotionally, I didn't. It's just different. We need to get to that place. Sorry, that was a tangent. That went off. It's all right. That went off into the into the into the weeds a little bit. That's okay though. Why well, I, I started it? I started that tangent. So yeah, but I don't know when to start <laughs> talking. Sometimes that's the problem. <laughs> so you got anything else? Nope. I just want to read to close this out. Joshua chapter twenty four verses twenty two through twenty three, and it says this: Joshua said to the people, "You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves Yahweh to serve Him." And they said, we are witnesses. Now therefore, Joshua said, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to Yahweh, the God of Israel. This needs to be our proclamation. Joshua had it right. This isn't just a story. He had it right. But that proclamation needs to be more than just lip service. It's great to say we are witnesses, we'll do this. Like the people in Hosea chapter 8 said, oh, we know you. It's got to be more than just words. At some point, those words have to translate into our actions. Name dropping Jesus while surrounded by pagan imagery is not enough. I'm sorry to be blunt, but it's the truth. It's the stone cold truth. He has never accepted that. God has never accepted that, and he never will. He didn't, he didn't shift at some point from telling the people of Israel, I won't accept this stuff, to just on a dime saying, not only do I accept it, I encourage it. It doesn't make any sense. 
It just, it does not. What we know needs to align with what we show. And what we show needs to align with his word, all of it. Every single syllable of his word should be valued by us. And we should be seeking to apply that. Otherwise, as I've said repeatedly in this episode, our clocks may look good, but the time will always be off. To those of you listening, I want to thank you for including us in your day. And I pray that this conversation was edifying for you, was encouraging. And if convicting, I pray that it was convicting in the right way. And I pray that it leads you closer to him. That's my prayer for this. Before you go, don't forget to follow our podcast. Leave a positive review if you're not too mad at us. (laughs) And click the bell icon to be notified whenever we upload new episodes. Also, feel free to join us on social media and share any feedback, questions, or discussion ideas you might have. Links are in the description. Additionally, if you can't get enough of my voice, although I say that, I haven't been on Broken Record for a couple weeks. So at time of you listening to this, I probably won't be there, so you won't hear my voice, but it's good anyway. Go search up Broken Record Ministries podcast and give them a listen. And as always, we pray that what we're doing here is a blessing to you, as well as a light pointing only ever to Him. This has been that Philly Faith Podcast, encouraging you to keep your feet steady upon the path, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, and pursue that Philly Faith. Until next time, Shalom. God bless. Singing glory, yeah. Amen. Singing glory.